It's good to see every one of you here. And can I just encourage you? Uh, worship was phenomenal tonight. Uh, I just w- want to encourage you. Levi, who leads from the acoustic on uh, these Saturdays, he's a full-time worship pastor at Next Level up in Yorktown. But because of just the season we're going through with my wife's health and all that, he's blessed us by coming here. How many of you guys have been blessed by him leading our worship? So I just encourage you. That guy right over there. Shake his hand. Tell him thank you because he's blessed our church. He's blessed my family, my household by coming to lead us. And he does a phenomenal job. Maybe you guys are thinking, well, it was only three songs. It was kind of short. That's because we're coming back at the end of service with a couple songs because we're going to be speaking on wonder. We're going to be speaking on worship. But uh, we're pulling from a sermon series we started in July. Very beginning of July, we started a sermon series called Your Cell, Your Soul, Eternal Wisdom for the Smartphone Age. And the timing coincides because 10 years ago, the summer of 2007, they released the first iPhone. Since then, 1 billion iPhones have been sold, iPhones specifically. Smart devices, way more than that. There's now more smart devices on the planet than there are living flesh and blood human beings. So screens, technology, they're everywhere. That's why in May 3rd of 2016, the editors of Time Magazine named the iPhone the single most influential gadget of all time, saying that it fundamentally changed our relationship to computing and information, a change likely to have repercussions for decades to come. So we've been asking in this series, okay, what are the repercussions? Especially with these screens being everywhere, technology being everywhere, as a follower of Jesus Christ, what's the proper place for all this technology in a life that wants to keep Christ in his proper place? At the center of our focus, at the center of our worship, and at the center of our hearts. But we've been studying all these different issues that arise, and we realize that technological innovation, technological inventions, they're really theological invitations to look at what we believe and how do we walk it out in the context we're living in. And in our context, there is an eternal text, the word of God that shows it's still relevant even in the digital age. Every problem we've talked about from situational awareness to the power of our words to burnout and rest, they're not new issues. They've just been presented to us in a new light, and each one of them is addressed in the Bible. And tonight, I want to take a fresh look at wonder. And I want to take a look in your Bible in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Mark chapter 6 Verses 1 through 6. This is Jesus returning to his hometown of Nazareth. Says in Mark chapter 6 verse 1 that Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. They asked where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles. Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Let's pray. Before I go any further, Lord God, we pray tonight, God, that we would have a healthy expectation, belief, and faith, God, that you want to speak to us where we are here in these pews, in your presence, that you would use your word to not just sow seed, but but, uh, put your living water on seed, that we would see fruit from digging into your word tonight and coming to you in worship and stirring up wonder again, Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts, our lives, and through us, in Jesus' name, amen. So I... I can remember 
my first cell phone. I don't know if you can. Mine was an LG flip phone. I got it as a senior in college. I was way behind the curve. Everybody had a cell phone before me, but I got it my senior year of college, and I joked when we launched this series, I can remember growing up when in my house there were two phones, one in the kitchen on the wall, one in the office on the desk. And when the phone rang, and if you wanted to talk to whoever was on the line, you had to run to the phone to get there before it went to the voice machine, right? Before it got to the message machine. And once you got there, you had to stay there because there was a, a, t- a cable that had you tethered to the wall. You couldn't just roam with your phone. But that's for somebody born in 84. G.K. Chesterton, who's an English writer, poet, critic, another Renaissance man uh, from, from last century, He said, I'm just old enough, in one of his works, he said, I'm just old enough to remember the world without telephones. You know, I grew up with phones. Phones were a reality for me. It seems ordinary, but when you think about phones, they're pretty extraordinary. And there was an article that G.K. Chesterton read that said, the time will come when communicating with the stars will seem to us as ordinary as answering the telephone." And G.K. Chesterton read that, and he took offense to it. Not that that it was off or off-putting, but his question was, should answering the phone, using a phone, really be ordinary? Not so much the communicating with the stars, but what's the aim of technological wonders if we ultimately lose our awe and wonder? And he wrote this short essay that, it's crazy, it was written so long ago, but it's so prevalent to today. It's called Our Indifference to Wonders. I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs. He says, we are incessantly told indeed that the modern scientific appliances, even those like the telephone, which are now universally applied, are the miracles of man and the marvels of science and the wonders of the new world. But though the inventions are talked of in this way, they are not treated in this way. He says, there has certainly been a rash of discovery, a rapid series of inventions. And in one sense, the activity is marvelous, and the rapidity might well look like magic, but it has been a rapidity in things going stale, a rush downhill to the flat and dreary world of the prosaic, a haste of marvelous things to lose their marvelous character, a deluge of wonders to destroy wonder. This may be the improvement of machinery, but it can't possibly be the improvement of man. He went on to say, improvement implies all that is commonly called education, and education implies enlargement, especially enlargement of the imagination. He says, I'm not depreciating telephones. I'm simply complaining that they are not appreciated. I'm not attacking inventions. I'm attacking indifference to inventions. And I'm not objecting to the statement that the science of the modern world is wonderful. I'm only objecting to the modern world because it does not wonder at it. You know, when I opened this series, just related the fact that the phone I keep in my pocket that I pull out multiple times a day it has 30,000 times the processing power of the 70-pound navigational computer that got Apollo 11 to the moon. That's crazy. In my pocket every day, I have access to that. It's pretty extraordinary. And last week, somebody joked after service. He was like, man, at the end of your sermon, I was ready to get rid of my phone and throw it away. And that, that wasn't the point, and he was kidding. But our phones have this crazy amount of power that should spark wonder that this is in our pockets. They're phenomenal tools, and it's only because of our habits and brokenness that they can become such digital tyrants. You know, one of the bad habits that I've developed is, is because my phone has a camera on it. Right? So when I see something beautiful, my impulse is always, oh, let me take a picture of it. 
There was an article I was reading that opened with this paragraph. It said, try to pinpoint the last time you took a purposeless walk through the late spring breeze when there was no itch in your hand to reach for a mobile device. And you felt like the wind and sky around you had nothing to disclose to you other than the vast and mysterious symphony of existence itself. Was it 2007 or as far back as 1997? Does just asking that question make you feel ill? And it's funny because in a lot of ways, that's me. I'll see a beautiful sunset. Not that I'm even going to share the picture. Might not ever look at it again, but my impulse is to capture it with a picture. When I see something beautiful, that's my impulse. So here's a picture of a bunch of people that are about to witness Johnny Depp walk by. Now, I'm not going to ask who thinks he's beautiful. I don't want to put undue stress on marriages or relationships. But uh, this is a picture as he's about to walk by, and it's hilarious to me because everybody's on their phone. This guy in the middle probably just found out he has no space to take a picture. He's probably frantically deleting pictures. But then you've got the lady right to his left who just looks so content to actually take it in and be captivated rather than trying to capture the moment. You know, this isn't a new problem, nor is it a problem to take pictures of stuff, right? I do it all the time. But you can't look at that picture and not say that it's pretty telling. You know, back when I was carrying a digital camera around William & Mary's campus, I didn't have a phone yet, John Mayer uh, wrote a song called Three by Fives. I don't know if somebody remade it today, it would probably be called like Instas because it's called No More Three by Fives, but nobody really prints those anymore anyways. But he says in the lyrics, I didn't have a camera by my side this time. I was hoping I would see the world with both my eyes. Today I finally overcame trying to fit the world inside a picture frame. You should have seen that sunrise with your own eyes. It brought me back to life. And you'll be with me next time I go outside, just no more three-by-fives. Now, this song it speaks to the reality that God's creation, we've all experienced it, it stirs something in us. It summons us. It summons us, hopefully, to a relationship with God. But even for anybody, it stirs something in you to witness God's beautiful creation. And, again, our impulse is so often to capture, but God wants to captivate. You know, not just with creation, you think about people and beautiful people and lust is this idea that I, I want to capture. What can this person give me, right? I want to make this mine, whereas love is so captivated, it thinks, what can I give? We want to capture, fit the world inside a picture frame, but the God who first loved us surrendered himself to the cross. He wants us captivated and surrendered to his goodness, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and what he did for each one of us. There was a German theologian who put it this way. He said, open yourself to God, not as one who seizes, but as one who lets go. Basically, open up yourself to God, not as one who, who captures, but as one who is captivated. You know, creation, again, it stirs and it summons something in us, and God created man to create. He gave us this ability to create, this creativity within us made in his image, and as we've talked about, we've been on a roll recently. Just this last decade, all the advancements in technology, and this word gets thrown around so often, quote-unquote, technological wonders. But it's like we've experienced so many that the phrase and the things no longer spark much wonder. It's like G.K. Chesterton said so eloquently, a deluge of wonders that destroy wonder. You know, as a kid, we're enchanted by so much. Raj is like every other baby on the planet. Ceiling fans are incredible. Like, he stands in awe of a ceiling fan. And I feel like every baby, like, something as simple as a ceiling fan or the, the boards on the ceiling will captivate them. There's enchantment when there's fireworks or a play or, or even playing pretend. It's enchanting to them. But the cry of enlightenment is that, well, we can figure this out. We know what's going on. 
It leads to disenchantment, no mystery, no awe, no wonder. And our impulse is to rush to critique. Our impulse in our culture is to rush to evaluate. We have to ask ourselves, have we stopped giving ourselves the space to wonder and appreciate creation and the value that things have in and of themselves? You know, hundreds of times in the Bible it says that we should behold. Both behold God and behold his creation. God did it. He created, and then he paused. After each time, he said, he beheld his creation. He said, it's good. But do we pause and wonder at God's goodness? Do we let it spark worship? Is our worship lacking because our wonder is lacking? But again, is it really a new problem? G.K. Chesterton lamented it. Years and years ago. And we see Jesus in this passage we opened with in Mark 6, struggling with people who stood in evaluation instead of all. Wonder didn't inspire worship for them. It went from wonder all of a sudden to critique like that. And Jesus walked away being able to do very few wonders. We don't want to end up in that situation. We, want to, we don't want to be a people who Jesus marvels at our unbelief. So there's Two things tonight I want to pause, reflect on, and hopefully we can apply that applies to our wonder and extends to our worship. And the first is that wonder requires humility. C.S. Lewis, in A Grief Observed, the, the, the book he wrote after his wife passed away. It's a powerful book. Just don't read it on a Friday night. It'll bum you out. But great book. He says, it doesn't matter that all the photographs of my wife are bad. It doesn't matter not much if my memory of her is imperfect. Because images, whether on paper or in the mind, are not important for themselves. They're merely links. He talks about how we're called not to love our idea or picture of God. We're called to love God as he's revealed himself. And we're not called to love our picture or idea of our wife, but our wife, our wife herself and not wives. <laughs> and we're not called to love our neighbors, the idea we have of our neighbors or how we picture them, but we're called to love them for who they are. He goes on to say, don't we often make this mistake as regards to people who are still alive? who are with us in the same room, talking and acting, not to the man himself, but to the picture. The summary, we've made him in our own minds. My reason for assuming that I do this is other people so often obviously do it to me. We all think we have each other taped. In Mark 6, it seems like Jesus' extraordinary works and miracles would have set him up for quite the homecoming. Like there would have been some kind of welcoming parade for the guy who's making Nazareth famous. But what C.S. Lewis writes about is the same mistake that the people of Nazareth, they make with Jesus. They think they've got him pegged because they, they know his upbringing. They, they know where he came from. He couldn't be all that that he says he is. And they make the mistake of 2 Corinthians 5.16 where Paul says we view people, they view Jesus from a worldly point of view. And it's ironic to me that in their assessment of Jesus, they almost echo the insult that was thrown at Jesus that nothing good can come out of Nazareth. It's basically what they deduce as they look at Jesus and consider Jesus. And in their consideration and in their questions, it's clear. Jesus has shown that he has wisdom. Jesus has performed miracles. But somehow, their astonishment, their awe, their wonder doesn't give way to worship. But it gives way almost spontaneously to cynicism and scornful evaluation. You know, it's a pattern we see so often in the Gospels and in the Bible that, that God works miracles. And it doesn't always lead to fruitful awe. And it doesn't always lead to faith. More often, I feel the equation we see in God's scriptures that our awe-filled wonder 
is what sparks God's awesome wonders. Like consider a verse like Acts 2.43, where it says, A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. There was an awe, a wonder, and a faith that the disciples were walking in daily that enabled God to move. And Joshua 3.5, likewise, Joshua was trying to steer up Stir up a fear of the Lord and an awe of who God is. And he says, purify yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. It's not always the case, but it seems like so often awe-filled wonder. And that kind of faith is what stirs God to move in wondrous ways. Joshua was writing here to the second generation of Israelites. Not the one uh, that, that experienced all the miracles in Egypt, that saw God's hand move in so many awesome, incredible ways. Those weren't the ones that walked in faith into the promised land. Those people that witnessed those things are the ones that grumbled against God, that didn't have the faith to enter the promised land, even after he had drawn them out from Egypt. It was their children, the next generation that ushered the Israelites into the promised land. And Jesus, when he ushered in the kingdom of God, he said, come like children. Come with awe, come with wonder. In Matthew 19, verses 14 through 15, he says, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. It speaks to the awe and wonder that children walk. And I remember I was holding Raj. We had just adopted him. We went down there in February to get him. We were in our hotel at New Delhi, and, and it was just a huge restaurant slash buffet, and, and I was holding him, and usually he's looking at me or Steph or looking at the ceiling, whatever. I just noticed he looked and was captivated by something, and I looked over, and it was a TV, and I realized this was probably one of the first times, if not the first time, he'd ever seen a screen that big lit up, and it was just the news showing highlights from a cricket game because that's all they care about over there. It was on the TV every time I turned it on. I still don't understand what they're doing, but it seems cool. But I just realized, man, this is probably the first time he's ever seen a TV screen. And he was totally enchanted by it. And the, the first toy we ever gave him was just this red uh, stacking cup. Played with it for an hour because he was just in awe of that. You know, we, we have thousands of toys because he's loved on by everyone. But you could give this boy an empty water bottle or a chapstick. And, and the first time he holds those things, he's in awe. And he plays with them for an hour, right? Same thing. Ceiling fan. He's in awe. He's enchanted. This call to childlike faith. we got to recognize it's not a call to childishness. It's not a call to immaturity, but a healthy maturity knows when, knows how to be childlike. Because somewhere along the way in, in life and in our culture, we've decided that information is key, but imagination is less crucial. Because information, it keeps us grounded in life, but imagination, that's for like escaping and escapism. And it's true, kids want to escape. They want to push boundaries. They want to curiously discover new things. That's why kids need routine. Kids need structure because every fiber of their being pushes against it. But somewhere along the way, we as adults, we adopt routine, embrace routine, and all of life is routine. And that same environment that can spark growth in children can cause adults to stagnate. Andy Stanley says that everything in life conspires against our sense of wonder, age, experience, our jobs, even church. We become stupefied by comfort and overwhelmed by busyness to where the structure and pace of life doesn't give us the opportunity to notice and ask questions and be curious and then step into these moments of awe and wonder where God can woo us and he can pull us closer into worship of him. You know, it was Albert Einstein 
who said, he who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. This is a man who understood so much of our world and God's creation, and he still had to pause, stand in awe. How much more should I? And what's, how tragic is it when I don't? Because just as we see that man's wonder, man's faith, man's fear of God preceded so many moves of God, we see in Nazareth that it was their lack of faith. It was their lack of wonder that disqualified them from experiencing God's goodness. And again, our culture in many ways has eliminated the ability to pause and wonder and be summoned by God and his beautiful creation. And we suffer for it. In our culture so often, maturity is everyone has an opinion and everyone's an expert. But the world is so much bigger than our view of the world. A kingdom maturity is marked by humility because you realize the world is so much bigger and beyond just my view of the world. And, and certainly God is much bigger than my view of God. A healthy maturity, again, knows that there's a time for awe and wonder because that flows from humility. 2 Corinthians 5.16, again, is this verse that says we can't consider each other from a worldly point of view. And it's so prevalent in our society. Like just the last 24 hours in Charlottesville, you ask, man, how do we get here? How do we combat this? Ephesians 2.10 says we are God's workmanship. The word for workmanship is poema. It's where we get the word poem. You don't skim poetry. You don't rush through poetry. You linger over poetry. You dwell in poetry. You soak in it. And our culture has lost its affinity for poetry in a lot of ways, probably because in the same way we've lost our affinity for pausing and having moments of wonder and awe. And this is a rabbit trail. But because of that, we do step into this trap C.S. Lewis talks about where we, we love the idea of our neighbor, the picture we have in our head of our neighbor, but so often we don't love our neighbor as they are. And that's when we step into generalizations and stereotypes and, and, and we forget the imago day that every human being is created in the image of God. Every human being has inherent dignity because of that. That Jesus, a, a Middle Eastern man, died so that he could save every one of those people. You know, any sense of racial superiority is straight from the pit of hell. It, it's, it's a tool, a toy of the enemy because it, it, it robs us of seeing God's creation as good. That there's dignity in that. It, it, it stirs up hate for the image of God. And, and really, in a way, it sets us up against the Son of Man, the Son of God, who died for every race, creed, and tongue on the planet. So that's a hard left turn from where I was, but in light of the last 24 hours, it had to be said. But he died for all of creation. Jesus did. And if God's craftsmanship, if his creation, his worksmanship is like a poem, that means we need to slow down and stop skimming our way through it. We need to, as the Bible tells us again and again, behold. Behold his creation. Behold what it says about God. Behold who God is. Just practical advice. Stand in evaluation less. Stand in awe more. Everyone's a critic because we all rush to evaluate. We all rush to critique. But, man, true wonder requires humility, to capture less, to critique less, and be captivated more. Again, John Mayer, I don't know where he's at in his walk with Jesus, but uh, he's recognized the beauty of creation and all its wonders. But again, all of nature stirs, all of nature summons, but it doesn't save. Right? So often with mankind, we stop at worshiping creation, but creation only stirs and summons. 
can't save, but the creator can, right? God and through Jesus Christ, the wonder starts with beholding creation, beholding God is good, but then it summons us into relationship with Jesus Christ, who's the hope of the world. The hope of the world, Christ's splendor, the gospel's wonder, the good news is goodness, right? It redirects our longings far beyond our square-inch screens. And hopefully, this wonder that is rooted in humility, hopefully this wonder, it results in praise, or at least it should. In Psalm 65, excuse me, I'm going to read verses 8 through 11. Only verse 8 is on the screen, but it says, those who live at the ends of the earth, stand in awe of your wonders. From where the sun rises to where it sets, you inspire shouts of joy. You take care of the earth and water it, making it rich and fertile. The river of God has plenty of water. It provides bountiful harvests of grain, for you have ordered it so. You drench the plowed ground with rain, melting the clods and leveling the ridges. You soften the earth with showers and bless its abundant crops. You crown the year with a bountiful harvest, even the hard pathways overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness become a lush pasture, and the hillsides blossom with joy. The meadows are clothed with flocks of sheep, and the valleys are carpeted with grain. And it finishes and says, they all shout and sing for joy. Praise, worship. God wants to be admired. He wants to captivate us. But how often do we drift into the stance of the people from Nazareth where it's like, I already know him from the Bible stories of my youth. I grew up in the church. What could he teach me now? What more could he offer? But perhaps that's why his people are commanded some 50 times in Scripture to sing. Over 400 times in the Bible, it talks about singing. And C.S. Lewis in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, he said, God kind of sounds like, a, like an old lady begging for compliments. But it's not that God is in need. It's because we're in need. This command to worship goes hand in hand with all the commands we have in Scripture to behold, to pause and step into moments of wonder about just how good God is. Yet how many of us picture worship, especially at a church service, kind of as an add-on, an appetizer, uh, something that's kind of extra credit, superfluous to the Word of God? Is that why so often you might show up halfway through the worship set not think a second thought of it? Just get me to the Word. Get me to the facts. Get me to the to-do list. Show me how to do life better. But do we forget God's command to sing? Do we ever pause to wonder why he did? Because the longer you walk with God, the more you realize every command he gives us leads us to life. It's like boundaries, guardrails on a highway that just keep us safe, keep us living, and lead us to more and more life. So why the command to sing? Some of the fellas in here are like, why would he command me to sing? You know, group singing is a natural, scientifically proven antidepressant. It's been proven that it diminishes cortisol in your brain, which in layman's terms, it means it lowers your stress. It releases endorphins, even strengthens the immune system. And in this 20, or excuse me, 2005 study that proved this effectiveness of singing, it, it was middle of the road, mediocre in quality singing. Not the voice of an angel, not a mix of Fergie and Jesus. It was mediocre singing, right? That holds a key as well as a greased pig. It's just singing, not necessarily beautiful, yet it benefits people to sing together. Hopefully you got somebody like Levi leading you, right, who can hit the melodies, and you just kind of come along, and it blesses us. Literally, 
blesses our brains, the cortisol levels in our brains. It releases endorphins. This command to sing is not about having the pipes to sing well. It's not about having just being in a nice emotional groove or feeling happy that day. It's a command because it's essential. It's why we worship every service. It's why we need it. So how do we move back from disenchantment to the enchantment and awe-filled wonder that fuels God's awesome wonders? By creating pauses, giving ourselves space to wonder. If I could just have the worship team come up. I want to close tonight. We're going to go back into worship, and we're going to just create a space to wonder. These songs we're singing about. This is amazing grace and singing about the goodness of God. There's just moments in life where we need to be still, as we talked about last week, and behold. Put aside all your achievements, failures, emails, to-do lists, your smartphones, your fears, your worries, and just abide in God's presence, seeking nothing but to behold him and soak in the wonder of his goodness. And I don't want to just talk about it tonight. I figured we can do it. Amen? So if we could stand, we're going to go into worship, but... There's an old worship song called The Wonder of the Cross. We're we're speaking on wonder and considering wonder. And it says, may I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. May I see it like the first time, standing as a sinner lost, undone by mercy and left speechless, watching wide-eyed at the cost. May I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. Jesus, we thank you. That we can gaze in wonder at the cross because of the grace and mercy that flow from it. Where we can stand before the cross and say, I'm not okay. I didn't do okay this past week. (laughs) I haven't done okay in my life. I'm broken. I need your grace. I need your mercy. And because of your cross, because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, Lord God, we can step under it again tonight. And God, I just pray that we would never lose that wonder lose that awe, the the fear of God that flows from that, the love of God being captivated by you. God, I pray that you would captivate us again tonight as we sing these words. God, don't let it just be rote routine or trying to hit a note or whatever it might be. Lord God, I pray that it would be truth that stirs our souls, summons us to you, God, and that it wouldn't just be stopping there, but it would be walking in relationship with you, drawing near to you tonight. Lord God, we want to do that even now through our worship. God, renew our wonder and our awe, the goodness of the gospel, the the beauty of the good news, the amazing quality of the story of Jesus Christ that, that is history, God, that reverberates and affects us even now. But God, I pray that in our worship, you would reset our perspectives, shift paradigms, Lord God, and meet us here. If you need prayer, as we're singing, as we're worshiping, the hilts are in the back. I'm right here in the front. But we're going to sing a couple songs before we leave tonight. We're going to put this to practice. And I pray it stirs up wonder and awe in Jesus' name.
Every heart. 